Okay, please be seated. That got you up. You know, in, in the manifestations, one of the things that God said was, hush, hush, and listen to my words. And we have to do that because God's word may be out and about and around us, but if we don't get quiet and focus on his words, then the other words around us are going to start to take precedence. So we're going to hush and listen to some of what God has to say about marriage. And I'm very excited about this topic. We're going to spend the next four Sundays looking at something that's very important in God's Word, something about which God has lots to say, and that is marriage, divorce, remarriage, and sex. When I wrote the email that I send out every couple of weeks, I wrote one this week, and I mentioned what I was planning on teaching and what I was planning on covering. I got more responses to that email than I have gotten to any other email I have ever written. Okay? So people need and desire to hear this. Now, some people are coming to this topic as a blank slate. I don't know what the Bible... I'd like to know what the Bible says about this. Others are coming to it with a little bit of nervousness and trepidation because they don't know what God says, and they might have some ideas and opinions, but they want to see what God has to say. So whether you're excited or nervous, I welcome you to hush and listen to what God has to say. You see, I'm sure that all of you have opinions about these four topics. My desire is that we can search the scriptures so that we can first learn, then understand, and then finally apply God's opinion to our lives. And my guess is that at some point over the next four weeks, you will be challenged. You'll be challenged to make adjustments in the way you think and approach life. So to help you with that, I want to give you some things to consider as we are hush-hushing and listening to God. First is that God is love. His will is always best. So look no further. Next, God knows everything. His directions are always right, and we can follow them. And finally, God is almighty, and he will enable you to accomplish his will. So don't be afraid. Now, I taught this material, or I taught some of this material about seven years ago, during a time when I was teaching the Gospel of Matthew. And there were verses in the Gospel of Matthew that, quite frankly, I had problems with. I could not understand some of the verses on marriage and divorce in light of what I know to be true about God's love, goodness, and mercy. As a matter of fact, I even considered teaching a different gospel than Matthew so that I could avoid it. Because, you know, the gospels don't all repeat the same thing. So, you know, oh, Mark doesn't have that. Okay, maybe I'll teach. No, God wanted me to come back to Matthew. And I know a part of the reason, at least, was he wanted to have brought to light a subject that has too long hidden in the shadows within the church. And that is namely divorce and remarriage. But, you know, just because the church doesn't talk about it doesn't mean it's going to go away. For much of the last 2,000 years, Christians have married, divorced, remarried, and had sex with very little instruction from God's word as to his purposes, his designs, and his blessings for these. When the church has abandoned its responsibility to 
teach the truth of God's word about this wonderful gift called marriage, the world stepped in. And the world provided its own set of wisdom. And that has not helped society in the least. As a matter of fact, it's brought great hurt and destruction to society. Now, it's not as though churches didn't have beliefs, opinions, and doctrines about marriage, divorce, remarriage, and sex. But often, to my understanding anyway, they were harsh. And they were not based on clear biblical teachings. For example, to this very day, in churches all over America and around the world, you may divorce your spouse because of adultery, but not because of attempted murder. Okay, now does that make sense to anybody here? Because it doesn't make any sense to me. We've got to have, there's got to be something that we don't understand here that God has taught. See, the prevailing view today is that marriage, sex, divorce, and remarriage are open questions. They are something to be designed, negotiated, ignored, or abandoned based on the choices and preferences of the consenting parties. God's word has something else to say. And God gives us a framework for understanding marriage and sex that is radically different than what we have been raised with, even if you've been raised in the church. Now, within this framework of marriage that God sets forth in his word, there is great freedom and there is great flexibility. But in its basic design and in its biblical godly purposes and responsibilities, these have been set by God, and they are not up for modification. As a matter of fact, it's because of the modifications that man has introduced to marriage that we see so much distress in our world today. For example, my car is designed to run on gasoline. But I'm an adult. I have free will. I can choose to put Mountain Dew in my gas tank, can't I? However, if I do that, my car is not going to run for very long. So the fact that I have free will, which we do have, what we want to do is exercise our free will to choose God and His will so that our lives can be blessed. Now, people usually have the most questions when this topic comes up. They have the most questions about divorce and remarriage. But you can't understand God's will about divorce and remarriage if you don't know what God is talking about when he speaks of marriage. And marriage is not a human invention. Marriage was designed by God, and it is not subject to revision by the conventions of man. Marriage, as we see in Scripture, has nothing to do with culture, education, or preferences. It is something designed by God at the beginning of human history, the very beginning of human history. If marriage were of human design, then humans could redesign it to fit their current tastes. That's the whole argument behind the so-called gay marriages. They want to redefine the word marriage to include something that is their current preference. Well, they can do that with language if they want, but God is unimpressed. God does not redefine things just because man redefines things. You know, when it, you know God calls prostitution sin. But in certain counties in Las Vegas, prostitution is legal. Does that mean that God says, oh, well, it's okay there? 
Oh, it's not sin there. You see, God doesn't change based on the choices that men and women might make. I'm going to stick with God. God established marriage. He invented it. And he set forth the conditions that govern it and will provide the greatest blessings within it. And as Christians, we should only marry, divorce, remarry, or have sex in accordance with what God's wisdom was in sending these into the world. The devil is well aware that God designed marriage. As a matter of fact, I feel that he is more aware of the potential blessings of marriage than most Christians. That is why he fights so hard to redefine and to ruin it. The devil has promoted alternatives to marriage, such things as living together, promiscuity, homosexual relationships, adulterous relationships, domestic partnerships, etc., etc., etc. These are all counterfeits of what God has given us in marriage. And think about this when you're thinking of counterfeits. Nobody counterfeits quarters. They're just not worth enough. Nobody counterfeits something unless it has value. The reason the devil counterfeits marriage is because he understands better than the church many times the value of marriage and what it can really be. Many Christians, by the time they've been married 5, 10, 15 years, their attitude about marriage is they're putting up with it. Sure was good those first few years, but now we're just putting up with it. That was not what God designed. That is not what his heart is. The devil appreciates the blessings that can be yours in marriage. The question is, do we appreciate and understand what God has done in marriage? And I do a lot of counseling. And I can tell you that most people, and Christians, because they're the only people I counsel, do not understand God's gift of marriage. Over the decades, numerous couples have come to me because they want to improve their marriages. But here's the problem. They don't really understand what marriage is. What is it that they're trying to improve? What they want is, well, we'd like less arguing. Oh, people, less arguing is setting the bar so low. I mean, that's not even setting the bar low. That's dropping it on the ground. And yet people would settle for that. They will settle for less arguing when what God wants is joy, happiness, peace. There's great peace when you know you're loved. You can be comfortable when you know that you are loved, when you are with people that you know love you. Don't you relax? Yeah. The greatest relationship in that regard is the marriage relationship. So before we go on to God's design for marriage, and I'm not going to spend time talking about how to live your marriages day to day, not in today's teaching. I'm going to suggest a book later that you can look at, but I want to go deeper than that. I want to go into the foundation of marriage. What is marriage? And to do that, I want to cover some of the myths that have circulated within our culture about what marriage is. First myth is, the key to a good marriage is to follow your heart. Okay, this is the 
message of virtually every Hollywood love story. And we all know that the people in Hollywood know lots about good marriages, right? No. You know what God says? God says to guide your heart, not to follow it. You know the difference between the guide and the follower? The guide knows where he's going. The follower doesn't. We are to guide our hearts. The basis of a good marriage is not following your heart, following your feelings. The basis or a marriage is based on promises. It is based on a commitment you make before God to be one flesh with the man or woman you have chosen to be your spouse. Okay, myth number two. The primary purpose of marriage is children. Marriage was not designed primarily or exclusively to propagate the human race. The human race propagates quite efficiently outside of marriage. They don't need marriage to make babies. If you choose to have children, and it's a choice, if you choose to have children, then marriage is what God has designed to be a fortress to raise and nurture those children. But children are not the purpose of your life. Third myth. Everything should be the same after I'm married. I've heard this many times. And usually it's like, well, you know, we just know each other so well. You know, everything's just going to be the same. No. While you're dating, while you're engaged, you have not yet been joined by God. You've grown closer, most certainly, but you have not yet been joined by God. There's going to be differences. But many times people don't think that they're really going to have to modify their activities or schedule or lifestyle after they get married. Hey, my fiancé knows I watch a lot of football. I'm not going to have to change any of those things. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Nothing could be further from the truth. When two persons come together and join with each other and become one flesh, their marriage constitutes such a radical change that neither party should ever be the same again. And if you are still the same, you're missing some blessings. All our priorities now have to be seen and adjusted in light of our marriage commitment. So then, what is marriage? What is its purposes? Let's take a look here. What are the blessings? First of all, marriage was designed by God for those who have a relationship with God. That is the design of marriage. We'll see all these in Scripture shortly. Marriage provides the most intimate human companionship. Marriage is above all other earthly relationships, and marriage is formed by a covenant that is made before God. All of what I'm sharing with you this morning apply to Christian marriages, because that's whom God designed it for. Well, Jewish in the Old Testament, but he designed it for people who had relationships to him, who were first and foremost in covenant with him before they were in covenant with anybody else. That's what marriage is all about. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2. Let's go back. Marriage, I told you it started early. You know, chapter 1, he's creating stuff. Okay, now we've got humans around. What is he going to introduce? He's going to introduce something wonderful. Look at Genesis 2, 7 and 8. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. First we see 
that man had a relationship with God before any other relationship was even introduced. God didn't have to do it this way. He's doing it this way to teach us something. He could have brought them forth at the same time. But God is doing it in a particular fashion and describing it in a particular way to illustrate a point. And that is our need to rely on him before all other earthly relationships. God had brought forth man and he had placed him in a perfect environment designed just for him. But it wasn't enough. And God knew it wasn't enough. Look at verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2. Then the Lord God said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. The cows and the dogs and the chickens were not helpers suitable for Adam. So it's not good for man to be alone. Now, Adam was uniquely alone. He was the only human. So no one has been as alone as Adam was at this very moment. Unless I guess you were a castaway on a desert island, but even then you would have had humans around you before that. Adam was uniquely alone, but the aloneness that God is talking about here is to be met in marriage, not in friendship. Those are other issues that God also addresses. We're looking at marriage. Adam needed a helper, a partner suitable for him, equal to him, able to provide him with companionship, something he could not get even from his relationship with God. And this companionship that God is about to provide is beyond any other friendship or family relationship. Look at verse 21. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. I guess if God puts you to sleep, what do you do? You sleep. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Talk about the imagery of one flesh that God is giving us in the way in which he brought forth Adam and Eve. He didn't have to do it this way. He could have just snapped his fingers and they both stand there. That's not what he chose to do. He chose to do it in a way that emphasized that Adam now had a helper in life completely suited to him. Someone that he could be one flesh with, which is what the next verse is going to talk about. And this next verse actually turns us away from Adam and Eve and looks down the road for all other marriages that are going to follow after it, including our marriages. Verse 24 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined, stay close close to, cling to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Become indicates a transition, right? From one state to another. That's why nothing stays the same. If you feel that things are going to stay the same, then you didn't read this verse. Marriage was to be the highest and the greatest earthly relationship. If you allow your parents, your children, your friends, your work, your hobbies to come into a place of prominence within your marriage, then at best you will not have the fullness of joy that God designed, and at the worst, you're going to destroy your marriage. 
We are to join to our spouses so that we can become one flesh. What does this say about the marriage relationship? What is God talking about here? It is above all others on an order of magnitude that can't even be compared to any other relationship. It is to be a closeness that cannot be separated. God repeats and expands on this in the book of Ephesians, which is a New Testament book. Ephesians chapter 5, let's look at verse 28. In the same way husbands should, what? Love their wives. Who says the commandments of God are difficult? That's one of my favorite commandments right there. Husbands, love your wives. I like that one. How are we to love our wives? I love her in my own way. That is the wrong answer. You need to throw a lifeline, buddy, because that is not the right answer. But how many times have I heard that from couples when I'm counseling them? The wife will say something. Well, he just doesn't love me anymore. I do so love you. I just love you in my own way. Wrong answer, folks. Bob's way, you know, Bob's way is just not worth much, okay? We are to love our wives as we would love our own body. Would we abuse our own body? If you had a broken foot, would you make it run a marathon? No, you wouldn't do that. Why? Because you care about your body. You wouldn't do anything to purposefully harm it or damage it. It's the same way we look at our spouses. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, we might think we already love ourselves. We spend a lot of time in the mirror. I love myself. If you don't love your wife as yourself, you're not lo- you don't love. No one ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Nourishes and cherishes. This is part of marriage. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Because we are members of Christ's body, he cherishes us. Because my wife is one flesh with me, I cherish and nourish her. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Repeating, for the second time that we've read it now, what we saw in Genesis. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Love here is not talking about primarily your feelings, although you will certainly have feelings with love. But that's not what it's talking about. Love doesn't lead with feelings in the Bible. Obviously, there are feelings. Obviously, there is an initial attraction. But love flows from the thoughts we have toward another. People sometimes speak to me that they have fallen out of love. I've fallen out of love. Like, well, you got a tightrope? You've fallen out of love? That is simply an indication that you have changed how you have been thinking about your spouse. That's, what that, that's, that's the result of that. Meaning I no longer, I once loved, I once loved. And you, why did you once love? Because of the thoughts you had towards that person. I don't love anymore. Why is that? Because you changed your thoughts. And guess what? They're your thoughts. You can change them back to the way God wants them to be. Love is a choice that we make, that we feed with our thought lives. It's a choice to long for. We long for our spouses. We value them. 
We hold them in high esteem. These are the results of love. This is the evidence of love. Being one flesh means that you care for each other as strongly as you care for your own body. Okay, there's the benchmark. Yes, I care for my spouse. Do I care for my spouse as much as I care for my own body? Many times the answer to that is no. I love my spouse. Do I love her like Christ loved the church? Well, See, God has set the standard so great because he has designed such great joys to go with it. A marriage properly lived reflects the relationship of Christ to the church. People can understand what the church is all about by looking at your marriage. That's the way it's supposed to be. Now, a marriage is formed by a covenant. A covenant is just a word that means a sacred or a solemn promise. Now, what is the sacred or solemn promise that you are making in order to establish a marriage? What is that promise? Where we, where we find what that promise was, it's, it's interesting. Where we, we have to back into it from the scriptures because marriage is a covenant, very clear. A covenant could be terminated if a person broke that covenant, just like any contract, okay? So if you break the covenant, then that covenant could be uh, dissolved, okay? So what the Bible shows us are some of the actions that would break the covenant of marriage. And therefore, these are the actions that break the covenant of marriage, and that shows us what that covenant really was. And I'm going to cover this section more in a couple of weeks when we look at divorce, but Exodus 21.10, why don't we go there? If he, if a man marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one or the first wife of her food, clothing, and marital rights. You know what marital rights is? Sex. Now, a lot of times people think that, well, when you talk about the need for sex in a marriage, you're talking about the man. Here it is, the man has to provide for the sexual needs of his wife. That's what this is talking about. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. She is set free. The divorce can be, or the marriage can be canceled because the covenant has been broken. See, most people understand that adultery breaks the covenant. We'll get into that when we talk about divorce. But these three things encompass what people promised to do for one another, with one another, when they got married. They took care of each other. We saw in Ephesians, they cherished one another. They provided for one another. Not providing food, clothing, and sexual love were legitimate grounds for divorce. These three points were the standards of the vows that formed a marriage. And this holds throughout the Old Testament. The promises were part of a Jewish wedding service. And breaking these promises were legitimate reasons for divorce. We're going to talk about illegitimate reasons for divorce in a couple of weeks. These three points make up at least a part. We might describe them a little differently in our language, but they describe a part of what it means to join to your wife or your husband and loving them as your own self. 
Now, you know what's so funny? The rabbis had to get involved in this. Okay, you've got a, you know, food, clothing, sex. You got, we, so the rabbis just have to get involved. How much food do you have to give your wife? How, what, how many times do you have to buy her new clothes? How much sex is there? They even define sex by profession. If you were a shepherd, it was suitable to have sex once or twice with your wife. If you were a town's tradesman, three or four times. If you were unemployed, it was every day. So, honey, I got good news, bad news. Lost my job. (laughs) So, uh, I don't do that. I don't impose those kinds of things. But the rabbis did. They did that. They, They enjoyed doing things like that. The point is that marriage, like other covenants, came with responsibilities and it came with blessings. And it was formed by a covenant. You see, state law determines what you must do in Illinois in order to receive recognition, like on your tax return, of that you're married or not. But these conditions of the state have nothing to do with what God's design is. According to God, marriage is a covenant, a promise based on solemn oaths. Covenants commit you to certain activities and they grant you certain rights and privileges. God made a covenant with Israel. We're probably aware of that. He would be their God and would bless them. They would worship Him alone and keep His commandments. The Ten Commandments formed the basis of that covenant, committing to those ten, and circumcision was the token that they had entered into that covenant. For me to be married, I entered into a covenant with my wife Susan. We'll see what I promised a little later in the teaching. So, but I had standards that I promised toward my wife. My wedding ring is the token that I have entered into that covenant. God at times describes his relationship to Israel not just as a covenant, but as a marriage covenant. Ezekiel 16.8 Later I passed by, and when I looked at you at Israel and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you, speaking to Israel, became mine. God here is using language that everyone in Israel would understand at the time, but that we don't, because it's not our culture. It makes no sense unless you understand that this is how a marriage was formed. You gave a solemn oath and entered into a covenant with the other person. If you read Ruth chapter 3, you'll see that Ruth asked Boaz to spread his garment over her. That's what this is talking about, which meant that she would be under Boaz's protection in marriage. Everybody understood that. We just don't until I explain it to you. Now you understand it. Now, what do we do for a wedding service? I tell people that most of what we do in wedding services is cultural, not biblical. The biblical part are the pledges, the vows that we make to one another. Everything else is cultural. Things like father walking his daughter down the aisle, ring bearers, attendance, whatever, all these other things, songs, they are cultural. They're not bad. They're nice. However you want to celebrate your covenant, that's quite all right. But what is biblical in all this? What is God talking about? And we actually have a record of 
a Jewish marriage from the second century BC. It's in a book called Tobit or Tobias. It's not a scriptural book, it's not God breathed, but it's a book that was written about 200 BC and it illustrates the time and what was going on in Israel between the end of the prophets, Malachi, and the coming of John the Baptist. It was in that period of time. And in it is described how marriage was instituted. Tobit 7.12. It says, Then Raguel summoned his daughter Sarah. When she came to him, he took her by the hand and gave her to Tobias, saying, Take her to be your wife in accordance with the law and decree written in the book of Moses. Especially in their culture, the daughter was under the protection of her father. And in this, the father is giving that responsibility over to her husband, the man who will be her husband. See, I notice I have two daughters. You know, most of you know that. And when my daughter Jennifer got married, it really struck home to me that I was giving my responsibility to protect her, to be her guardian. I was giving that to Dan, her husband. So the way I view my relationship to Jennifer today versus my relationship to Sarah, who is not married, is, is slightly different. But that's what this is talking about here. It says, take her to be your wife, how? In accordance with the law and decree written in the book of Moses. Take her and bring her safely to your father. And may the God of heaven prosper your journey with his peace. Then he called her mother and told her to bring writing material. And he wrote out a copy of a marriage contract to the effect that he gave her to him as wife according to the decree of the law of Moses. Then they began to eat and drink. This was a marriage covenant, a marriage contract. It was formed, it was a written contract. We still have that today. You go to the you go to County of DuPage, they give you a mar- wedding certificate, which I sign. Or I give you, actually what I usually do is I also give you another one that's more biblical, that we sign. The decree according to the law of Moses would reflect the responsibility to love, to protect, to provide for, to care for each other. There also was a wedding reception. They ate and they drank. We see this also in the wedding feast at Cana. That's why it's called the wedding feast at Cana, not the wedding service at Cana. We don't see that. But we see the party. Pretty much the whole town was invited. What you do for a party when you get married is entirely personal. It depends on the wealth and the desires of the couple involved. They can do whatever they like. Malachi also speaks of marriage as a covenant. It says in Malachi 2.14, Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Who's a witness to your marriage? God, before whom you made the covenant. But it goes on to say, Against whom you have dealt treacherously. This is a reproof. Though she is your companion, remember in Genesis, and your wife, how? By covenant. What made her the wife? Covenant, the promise. God declares here that he is the witness. He's more than a witness, though. He actually steps in to be part of the joining. In the Old Testament, they have uh, the description of a threefold cord, which which is rope-making, okay? So a threefold cord was the husband, the wife, and God wound together. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, it says, 
He, Jesus, answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Third time we've seen that statement. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now the Pharisees had asked Jesus about divorce, and we'll look at that in two weeks. Jesus chose to give his first answer about marriage, because God wants to talk about the positive what it's supposed to be. Now, it is between here one man and one woman. That contradicted the common practice of the ancient world of wealthy men having more than one wife because the Bible puts women on an equal basis with men that the world did not do. So, in the ancient world, wives were property. Today, rich people collect houses and boats. In the ancient world, they collected wives. Jesus is saying, a man and a woman. That's the way it's supposed to be. Not only is God a witness, he takes part in joining you together. This is why living together outside of marriage is a counterfeit of marriage. A pale counterfeit, by the way. Now, breaking a covenant that only men had established is considered bad enough, right? You break a human covenant, a human contract, you can can be brought to court, right? Breaking a covenant in which God entered in, that's even more extreme. Now, Jesus said that man, uh, let no man separate, right? He said, let no man separate. He didn't say that man cannot separate. He said that he should not separate. We're going to consider this section in a couple of weeks. So the the solemn oaths of the covenant of marriage still form a central part of our marriage services to this day. They have changed very little over the 2,500 years of Christian and Jewish marriages for which we have records. When I officiate at a wedding, I read from Genesis, I read from Ephesians, and then I... I allow the couple to make a pledge to one another. And here's the pledge as I, would, as I made it to my wife. I, Robert, take you, Susan, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward. In the presence of God, our family and friends, I offer you my solemn pledge to love you unconditionally, to honor and respect you, to cherish and sustain you in every situation and under every condition, as long as we both shall live, I make this promise according to God's holy word, and by this I pledge myself to you. And I'm still pledged to her. These vows and others like them from both Christianity and Judaism represent and reflect the responsibilities that we saw in Deuteronomy 21. It's just stating them a different way. It's fleshing them out a little. Marriage, then, is a formal covenant between a man and a woman to provide for intimate and full companionship as well as mutual care for the physical needs in life, which man still needed even after God had brought him forth and put him in a garden. He still needed this. The marriage covenant 
begins when a man or woman exchange vows, not when they have sex. Once you have established a marriage by covenant, you are then free to engage in godly sexual intimacy. But the sexual intimacy itself does not initiate or constitute a marriage. Now, like other covenants that God established in his work, because there's lots of them, covenant's just a solemn promise, the marriage covenant had both responsibilities and it had blessings. And in my opinion, the blessings outweigh the responsibilities by a significant margin. Marriage was so important that in the Old Testament, he allowed the men to take a year off once they got married. Look what it says in Deuteronomy 24.5. If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. Isn't that great? That didn't mean he didn't work. He still, but he just wasn't sent anywhere. What was he to bring to his wife? Happiness. Okay, let's take a look now at some of what we've learned about marriage. The foundation for establishing a good marriage. The foundation for establishing a marriage, first and foremost, a relationship with God through Christ. If you don't have that, nothing else I'm going to tell you, nothing else you're going to read is going to make much difference. First, we have a relationship with God. There are responsibilities with marriage as well. I have a responsibility. Those of us who are married have a responsibility to provide, not to seek for, but to provide full companionship to your spouse. I hear all the time about what I didn't get, what I'm not getting. (laughs) That's not what it's about. It's about what you give. It's not about what you get, me, 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 me. Mirror, mirror on the wall, I'm the fairest of them all. No. You see, everything is backwards in our culture. I provide full companionship to my spouse, even if I don't get it back from her. That's that's, That's what this covenant is. Place the marriage relationship above all other relationships. Be helpers at each other's side throughout all of life. Provide sexual fulfillment to one another. Husbands are to be the head of the new family unit. Your father, her father, your brothers, older brothers, uncles, they are not in charge of this new family unit. It is a new family unit. And the husband is to be the one responsible before God for this, not any other person. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are to respect their her husband and recognize the authority of her husband within the family before God. Now, how about the blessings and benefits of marriage? Now, some of those things I just read as responsibilities, like sexual fulfillment, that's also a blessing, okay? Some things appear on more than one list. So, what are the blessings of marriage? Joy and happiness. He was going to bring happiness to the wife he had married. So, what's a benefit of marriage? What's one, uh, uh, happiness is supposed to be a benefit of it. A companion and helper in all of life. That's a benefit. Sexual fulfillment. That's a benefit. The enjoyment of a relationship that reflects Christ and the church. What higher relationship could there be? There are consequences to a broken covenant. And those consequences, first and foremost, are we miss all those blessings. 
we miss, all the, we miss out on all the blessings. If it goes far enough, we can lose the covenant of marriage altogether. But rather than give a list about all the things we need to do, rules about marriage, because people like rules, God gives us one. One thing that we need to focus on. One standard, and that is you are to be one flesh with your spouse. That's the one standard. Now, that looks a little different in every marriage, but that's what we're looking for. That's what it's all about. We are to consider all other relationships as subject to our marriage covenant and commitment. We are to be joined to our spouse as one flesh, loving and caring for each other as we would our own bodies. Now, if your marriage, as you sit here this morning, if your marriage does not reflect these truths, don't despair. It doesn't mean that your marriage is over. What it means is your marriage needs attention. That's the difference. Now, there are men and women whom God has raised up over the centuries that help us to understand the nuts and bolts of what this looks like in day-to-day life. One of the best that I know of today is Emerson Egrich, who wrote a book called Love and Respect. I highly suggest that you get it and look at it and consider it prayerfully in light of your Christian marriage. So now that you understand a little bit about marriage, you know what we're going to consider next week? Sex. That is something that God has placed uniquely within the fortress of marriage. And that's what I'm talking about, the fortress of marriage. I am fairly certain that what God has to share about sex is a little different than what the world has to share about it. That's okay. world doesn't know squat. Okay, what's, what's go- I'm about finished. What's your takeaway? What is our takeaway from this morning? What do I want you to leave here with? Well, if you are married, why not ask God to show you how to better fulfill and to enjoy the solemn promises that you made? If you are contemplating marriage, either in the near term or in the long term, is this something you would like in your life? Ask God to show you how you can become the man or the woman who can live the covenant, that, the, the covenant gift that he has given us in marriage. Now here's something that I want to share with people who are married. What if you are married and you didn't make a covenant with your spouse along the lines of the one I read to you, along the lines of what we saw in the scriptures? Well, that happens at times when people get married before they come to Christ. I had a couple in Washington, D.C. They wanted me to redo their wedding. They had three kids already. They wanted me to redo their wedding because when they got married, you know, their vows was, well, I will love you as long as I love you. You know, it was just like really weak, you know. And they said, we, not understand. we, need, we want better than that. So if when you got married, you did not make a covenant along biblical lines, why not do that? You can do it at home today with your spouse. Why not go out for a special date night and do it then? Or, if you would like, you can invite me over to your house and I'll do it with you. I'll pronounce it with you. I'll go through it with you. I'm happy to do that. I've done it, like that couple in D.C. Our marriages and the blessings that God wants for you in marriage are far too important to put on automatic. We don't want to do that. Allow God to direct your steps into the enjoyment 
of this wonderful gift that he has given to us called marriage. Now, I have prepared for today's teaching an outline. I didn't give it to you ahead because you didn't need to look at it to listen to what I had to share. But it's on the display table so that you can pick it up as a reminder of the, some of the things that God says about marriage. And now I'd like you all please to stand and we're going to pray together, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've had to quiet our hearts, to hush And to listen to you and to understand your heart, your love, your goodness, and your gift in marriage. And I pray for each of us here today. For those of us who are married, I pray, God, that we can be the husbands and wives that you have seen us to be, God. I pray that we can bring this message of joy and peace and happiness in marriage to everyone we meet. That we can instill it within our children. I thank you, Father, that if the day comes when we grow older and our marriage has ended through death, that we can still, even at that time, God, share with people what it really is all about. And I pray, God, that we can be a beacon to the world of what marriage was designed to be. And I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. God bless you. You guys are wonderful. I love you. Bye-bye.